Won't you bow your heads? We're going to prepare our hearts for this passage of Scripture, which is the transfiguration of Jesus, and it is a, it's a massive one. I want the Lord to prepare hearts. Father, we just come before you and thank you for the privilege to hear from you as you're going to speak from your word. And Lord, I know I've had a busy week and I don't know what has taken place in the hearts or lives of everyone here, but, but you have ordained this moment, this, this very moment, these next 45, 50 minutes to hear from you and you're going to speak from your word. So I pray, Father, that you would give me the ability to speak clearly and that you would allow hearts to hear, and that Jesus would be exalted, Christ and Christ crucified, because all He is the only one that really matters. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, if you would. Mark chapter 9, if you're not already there. I'm going to ask you a question to begin. Have you ever gotten any, some inside information or an early look at, at, at something and that created uh, an excitement for when the the product actually came out or whatever it was that you were trying to get your get your hands on. I mean, marketers do this all the time. They do it with the latest smartphones. They've you know they they even do an unveiling event. You probably think of of Apple or some of the other uh, cell phone folks that do that or movie trailers. It's an age-old practice to show you a little bit of something beforehand to promote an, uh, an event or a product that's going to come out later. In, in a couple of weeks, there's, there's some movie called The Last Jedi coming out. I mean, not that anybody's ever heard of that before. And they've been releasing trailers for almost a year. And I even saw one little Star Wars fan club guy a couple of weeks ago where he'd actually taken all the trailers and he melded them together and was promoting his YouTube page as four and a half minutes of the film ahead of time. He'd, he'd weaved them together in chronological order, and people were, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of hits it was, because people wanted to see it beforehand. That's, that's the purpose. It's a preview. Well, the preview that we've got before us this morning is way bigger than, than any movie, every movie, and anything that's ever been promoted. It, it's... It's called the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And in it, God gives a preview. He gives a glimpse of the glory before it ever arrives, the glory of the kingdom. And he does this to help the disciples anticipate it and to help us anticipate it because we're still waiting on the return of the king and the arrival of the, of the kingdom. This scene... In Mark chapter 9, beginning in, in verse 1, is recorded in all of the synoptic gospels, or similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't, but Matthew and Mark and, and, and Luke do. And it's introduced in the same place in the storyline, and it's introduced almost exactly the same way. It comes on the heels of the, of the confession by the disciples that Jesus is the Christ, and then his call for a submission to, to his plan. And that plan involves a cross, and we've been looking at that in, in, in Mark chapter 8. The Messiah leads to the mission. They recognize the Messiah, and then immediately the mission is, is given. And the disciples' great confession, God calls them to a great submission. He's not only the Christ, but the Christ is going to the cross, He's going to suffer. And then if you want to follow Him, you will do the same thing. 
And now they're going to get a preview of what that submission will bring, what awaits them, the exaltation. Confession, submission, exaltation. And that's the pattern that we still have today. God exalts the who or what? The humble, those who submit, God lifts high. And everyone who follows Jesus will deny themselves, will die to themselves and follow Jesus and bear a cross. And those who do will enter a kingdom and will reign with Christ in glory whenever he returns. And and Jesus gives the disciples a a preview of that. Remember, we are in Act 2 of three Acts in Mark. The first is the Galilean ministry. And now this time period is to prepare the disciples for the last act, which is Jerusalem. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus expressed purpose for bringing the disciples here. What's going to happen between now and the time they get to Jerusalem is to prepare the disciples for what is is going to, to come. Because he's going to unleash them, this ragtag band of of 11 guys and one who is of the devil, that last one will be replaced, and then they're going to preach at at Pentecost. And Jesus is showing the disciples the entire plan from beginning to end in Caesarea Philippi. He is the Christ. The Christ will suffer. Those who follow him will suffer as well. And then the Christ will be exalted and reign, and those who follow him will be exalted and reign with him as well. And that's what this is. It's a preview of the glory. A preview of the glory of the king, a preview of the, the glory of the, of the kingdom. Remember, or look, if you will, at how verse 38 ends, how chapter 8 ends before we get to this. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, right here, right now, now watch him go to future, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He, he ends that, that, that scene with, with future. It's when the Son of Man comes. And then what follows that is this preview of the Son of Man's coming, of, of the glory of the kingdom. Right now, the splendor of the sun is concealed. Right now is not the time of the glory, even though that's what Peter wants. Right now is not the place of the kingdom. Right now is not when the Messiah will reign, but He will come. And when He does, it will be in full glory. And all those that follow Him, just as He laid out, will reign in glory as well. Submission follows confession, and glory follows suffering. I can remember my grandfather... Didn't go beyond sixth grade in the hills of West Virginia. One of the wisest men that I ever knew. His favorite book in the Bible after he got saved about 60 years of age was the book of Proverbs. And he used to say, you know, if there wasn't a heaven, following Jesus would be worth it here and now. But Jesus says that there is a heaven. And whatever suffering that you go through on this earth for Christ, glory is what follows. And the transfiguration is to anchor the disciples and us in that confidence that whatever God calls us to suffer, whatever it's going to cost us to follow Christ, and it will cost you if you follow Christ, whatever that is, He wants to anchor us in the confidence that what comes after this earth, what comes after the suffering, what comes after the difficulty is glory. And Jesus unveils His glory as a foretaste. 
It's a really, really good passage to look at before Christmas because the incarnation actually begins it all. What, what are we celebrating Christmas? It's the incarnation. It's when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, comes. He's the baby born in Bethlehem in the manger, the virgin born. And in the incarnation, what does Jesus do? He takes upon himself human flesh. And his glory is veiled. He even prays in John 17 to the Father, glorify me with the, with the, with the glory that I had before. And in that moment, when, when the second person, God, a very God, takes upon himself human flesh, that glory is veiled, and he becomes the God-man. That's what Christmas is all about. The coming. And then after the resurrection, he's the God-man raised in glory. He's raised bodily from the dead. And in the end, he's going to be the God-man glorified. He's going to be the centerpiece of heaven. And Jesus here unveils some of that glory. Let me give you the outline, if you will. It's a preview of the, of the king. There's Christ's transformation, you see in verses 1 through 3. There's the Old Testament's corroboration, verse 4. There's the disciples' recommendation in verses 5 and 6. And then there's the Father's verification in verses 7 through eight, and we'll look at the first one, which is is really the the amazing part, Christ's transformation. In these first three verses, he shows us the promise to see, a people to observe, and a presentation to to behold. Look, if you would, at verse one, because it begins with a promise. Jesus was saying to them, "Truly, I say to you." There are some of those who are standing here. Now, he's speaking to the disciples, not just Peter, but all of the disciples and, and the crowd. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. You're not going to die until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, after it's appeared with power. And after mentioning the, the coming of the Son of Man in glory, in verse 38, Jesus says that there are some who are standing right there who are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God with their, with their eyes. We walk by faith, not by, what? Sight. But here they get to see. They get to see something. The disciples got to, to see miracles, specific ones. And this is the miracle of all, of all miracles. And that's exactly what comes next. Now, a lot of people look at this, what does this mean? Is this the resurrection? Is this the kingdom? I think it's very plain right here. It's no reason to wrangle about it. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He says, you're going to see the glory of the kingdom. Some that are alive right here standing are going to see the glory of the kingdom. And that's exactly what they see in the next verse. It's exactly what comes next. In all of the, all of the gospels. The Father revealed that Jesus was the Christ to Peter. Peter confessed it by faith, and now he's going to see with his eyes. It's probably Mount Hermon, the, the high mountain that's, that's mentioned here, because they're close to Caesarea Philippi, but the Bible's not specific. It just says the mountain or the high mountain. 
Now, I want you to notice who he takes with him, because he doesn't take all the disciples with him to see. The promise was some of those standing, and he only takes Peter, James, and John. You you see that very clearly in verse 2. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, this is the second time that this little subgroup has been has been singled out. The first time, and all, all, all three times in Mark, when Peter, James, and John, this subgroup is, is, is invited to experience something that the other disciples did not, it's significant. The first time was back in Mark chapter 5, when they get brought into the inner chambers with, with Jairus' daughter. You remember that? They get to see the resurrection. Peter, James, and John are allowed to come in the room when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the, from the, from the dead. And you probably are also thinking Peter, James, and John were there at the Garden of Gethsemane, right? They get to go a little farther than the rest of the disciples, and they're the ones rebuked for falling asleep. And if you go over to, to Matthew or Luke, I forget which one specifically, it says that they're actually sleeping up on this mountain as well. But this is the second time Peter, James, and John get separated from the disciples and they come with, with Jesus. They saw a preview of the resurrection, Jairus' daughter. They get to see a preview of the glory here, the transfiguration. And then they get to participate in the prelim of the cross, the garden. So, so the question that I have is why these three? And why only three? I mean, if you're going to be transfigured, and all, you're, going to, you're going to unveil all of your glory. Why not do that for all of the disciples? Why, why not take different disciples? Why Peter, James, and John? Why not take one disciple, or six disciples, or two? He sent them out two by two. Why three, and why Peter, James, and John? Well, well, I I can tell you that the answer is not because this is the super group of of the disciples, because Peter's on the list, right? Peter's first on the list. I mean, he just got used by the devil... and was rebuked by Jesus himself for being self-centered and worldly in his thinking. He wants to skip the cross and go right to the kingdom. So it's, this is not the top scorers in disciple class here. These three were not chosen because they were better than the other disciples, but because God wanted to use them in a specific way, and they needed this experience. They would be chosen to preach at Pentecost, and they needed this experience because they're going to suffer more too. They needed it. Peter just confessed Christ, but confused the crown, was used by Satan. And Jesus just laid on Peter that he was going to suffer and die if he followed Christ. And Jesus knew Peter and James and John needed to see this in order to strengthen their faith and continue to fulfill God's plan. And I think that's a really good lesson for us in kingdom service. You do not have the position in church or in your sphere of influence for Christ because you're so much wiser or so better, so much better than than everybody else. You may have been chosen for that position, to have that spiritual gift or that experience because you're that weak, not that strong. 
You might not be a teacher because you're so smart, but because God knew, I tell this to seminarians all the time, because God knew that he may have to put you in the word every day so you'll make it to heaven without failing or falling. You might have received that knowledge or, or that experience because you're going to use it somehow for others. I mean, whatever you have, the Bible says, is by measure of faith, right? That's why Jesus took these in particular. Peter, Peter needed strengthen. Peter, James, and John would be chosen as the public preachers after the resurrection. And Peter, James, and John would witness the garden, so they needed a glimpse of what awaited them so they would not lose heart. I wonder if you can think of a time when God took you to the spiritual mountaintop to give you enough strength to go through the valley that's coming right after it. Jesus does this for them, and yet they still fell. They all scattered and would have been lost had not Jesus sustained them. Do you remember Peter's bold declaration in Luke 22? Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You know, Jesus prays the same thing for you. He's the advocate before the Father, and he is there continually securing your position. And that's why your faith's not lost. And you remember what Peter says? Peter says, I am ready, Lord, to go to prison with you and even to die. You remember what Jesus says? Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you even know me. Be careful not to think too highly of yourself, because when you think you stand, you'll end up falling. So that's why he took these three. Now why does he take three in number and not one or, or other? Well, Deuteronomy, the Old Testament tells us that evidence is confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's carried over into the New Testament. Matthew 18, 1 Timothy 5, don't entertain an accusation against an elder except two or three witnesses. And look at what they are going to witness. This is the presentation that they're going to behold. Look at the end of verse 2. They go up on the high mountain, and he, that's Christ, was transfigured before them. He was transformed. The word that's used is where we get the word metamorphosis. It's two words, morphe and meta. Morphe, form, and meta is change, to change form. He his form changed. His form changed before them. That's what transfigured means. Now, Jesus didn't change. His form changed. Nothing changed on the inside because he's God. Jesus didn't, didn't morph into something else. His form changed. His appearance changed. And that's what we sing about. At Christmas, the incarnation, you sing about it all the time and might not even, even know when the when the Godhead was veiled in human flesh, and here God is unveiled. Hark the herald angels sing. You know that song, right? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And now He's... His form changes and they get to see the second person of the Trinity under the flesh. 
Jesus always had that glory. He never ceased to be God, but His glory was veiled. And one day, that glory is going to cover all the earth. And that glory is uncovered for the disciples here to see. And what they see is exactly what they would have read in their Old Testament whenever God the Father showed up or the angel of the Lord showed up. When God appeared in the Old Testament, He appears exactly like He's described here in verse 3. Look, if you would, at verse 3. It says, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And I just think that's an odd statement. So much so, I thought... MacArthur said Mark must have had a bad experience at the dry cleaners to put that in there. He's trying to describe what he, can, what he sees, what no man sees on a regular basis. I mean, how do you describe a vision of God? His clothes became radiant. It, it was like it, it glittered. It, it means it glittered like a diamond in the full sun. It was brilliant, blazing white, like looking at the sun. It was white and gleaming. Luke said, like lightning that doesn't flash. It just remains. And it wasn't just his clothes. It was all of him. He was light. What are you saying? He's light. And that's how God showed up in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 9, God appeared as light. In Exodus, God appears to Israel as light by night. In Exodus 24, He appears to Moses as light. In Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle is completed and God appears in, in the Shekinah glory as light and cloud. And here is God appearing again, and He is appearing exactly the way that these the disciples are Jews. They would have done their Old Testament. It's how God shows up in the Old Testament. And now they're on the high mountain with Jesus. And His form changes... And exactly what God showed up like in the Old Testament. But that's not all that they saw. They saw the saints of the Old Testament as well. Here's the corroboration of the Old Testament. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So you have Moses, who is the agent of the law. You have Elijah, who is the proclaimer of the kingdom. He's the guardian of the law. He's the great prophet of, of, of Baal, the one that attacked the prophets of Baal and killed them. And he's also the one that is going to come and proclaim the kingdom. And then you say there's a topic of conversation. They're talking. They don't just appear. They're, they're talking. Now, this is mind-blowing. I mean, not only is Jesus unveiled in his deity, but Moses and Elijah appear as, as, as well. The prophet and proclaimer of the coming kingdom and the agent of the law was standing before them. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, they've been dead for hundreds of years. There's no pictures. Oh, yeah, I remember in my, in my picture Old Testament Bible book, there, that's what Moses and Elijah looks like, right? How did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? They've never seen him before. Well, they looked really Jewish, right? Is that, is that what he said? Moses and Elijah are glorified spirits. Their bodies haven't even risen from the dead yet. 
So what was their form? God provided Moses and Elijah the visible form, just like he did himself in the Old Testament. And if God is able to provide glorified spirits a visible form, then he's surely able to make them recognizable to Peter, James, and John. And God confirmed to Peter, James, and John this was Moses and Elijah. And the reason he did is because Moses and Elijah, their presence confirms something much greater. It's the topic of of conversation. Now, when you hear Moses and Elijah, you should hear the Law and the Prophets. These men represent the Old Testament. As the Law and the Prophets, they're standing before Jesus and they're talking. And Luke tells us very specifically what they're talking. What are they talking about? Well, Luke tells us very clearly. Here is Luke's passage. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know what the topic of their conversation is? They're talking about what he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem, which was his death. Because it's always been God's plan for the Christ to suffer and die. And it's always been God's plan for Him to suffer and die on Mount Moriah. And it's always been God's plan for Him to suffer and die on the hill in Zion. Which is why God loves Zion. Now think about this. The disciples embrace the person, they struggle with the plan. Jesus unfolds the plan, which includes a cross, and Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus is saying to Peter, James, and John, and to us, it's always been part of the plan. Jesus is not some victim of horrible circumstances. He's not, as Bill O'Reilly said, some political figure that just got caught up and he was a revolutionary, so they, so they killed him. It's always been part of God's preordained plan that he would come as the last Adam, live a perfect life, and die a physical death on a cross. And it's confirmed by Moses and Elijah. And their speaking about this proves that that very thing. They're corroborating what Jesus has said to his disciples. The writer of the law and the representative of the prophets knew about the death of Christ. It's always about a a substitute. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, who was the promised one. The Passover lamb and the blood on the door of In Egypt, Levitical sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, Prophets Isaiah 53. Jesus declares it all over the Bible in John 5.39. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, he says to the apostate Judaizers. But it's these that testify about me. John 8.56 Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And do you remember the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? Luke 24. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's the whole plan. And the Bible says Jesus in his resurrected glorified body will be the centerpiece of heaven with the marks of the cross still on him as a testimony to his atoning work. And in the end, every tongue and tribe and nation will bow before the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world and they will proclaim you are worthy to receive glory and power and honor. That's what they'll proclaim. And it will be the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, having gone to the cross, in the grave, resurrected, ascended, and glorified. Now, that's quite a sight. No wonder Peter sticks his big foot in his mouth again. Look at verse 5. There's the disciples' recommendation. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For, for they did not know what to answer because they became terrified or sore afraid. I would think so. Now, you've seen those commercials, Do You Want to Get Away? Peter just became the permanent spokesman for those commercials with this statement right here. First, he's re, he rebukes the Lord. And now, instead of falling on his face... He interrupts Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking and says, i got a good idea. Let's build three tabernacles, one for each of you. And let's just stay right here on the mountain. What's Peter saying? A tabernacle or, or a tent is what the Jewish people used to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles when God led them out of Exodus. Peter's saying, let's, uh, let's erect three new tents of meetings. Let's establish the kingdom right here. We've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got Jesus. Let's have it now. We'll make the tabernacles. We'll go right into the kingdom. And me and James and John will be the servants of the three tabernacles. We'll, be, we'll stand right here and serve right up on the mountain. How ingrained is your earthly thinking? That ingrained. I mean, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the cross. And Peter interrupts the conversation and suggests that we skip the cross and establish the kingdom right now. What a knucklehead. But that's not God's plan. You know why it's not God's plan? Because there can be no sinners in the kingdom without a cross, and God loves to save sinners. That's why. And so you have one final thing. Here's the Father's verification. Look at verse 7. Then, while Peter's speaking, making his suggestion, a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him or hear Him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. There's a cloud. There's a voice. And then there's a command. Now, I told you before, when God showed up in the Old Testament, He... He showed up in light. But when He showed up, He also showed up like a cloud, right? 
Here's a cloud, it engulfs, it engulfs is what it means, it formed, it overshadows, it engulfs Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's a manifestation of God the Father with the Son in His glory, present. It's an engulfing cloud like, like Sinai. And the light of the sun, you have the cloud of, of the Father, the light of the sun, and a voice thundering. And the voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, lay your hand over your mouth and listen. Peter was rebuked by Jesus in front of the disciples. And now Peter is rebuked by the Father in front of Moses and Elijah. You talk about a humbling experience. And you know why he was rebuked? Both times he wanted to promote man's way. Over God's way. Now, do you remember why the three disciples were brought along? How many witnesses do you need? Two to three? Three are better than two? Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. And the final witness is the Father Himself. And God is confirming to the disciples out of the mouth of three witnesses that what Jesus said about His death is true. And the disciples are not to build tabernacles now, they're to listen to the Son. And that's exactly what we're commanded to do today. We're not to build heaven on earth through social justice or the like. We're to listen to the Son and we're call others to call others to listen to the Son. And when you listen to the words of the Son... He says, I must go to the cross because only at the cross I can be a substitute and make an atonement for you. You know, in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, after man sinned, God drove man away. And He did that out of mercy, right? So He wouldn't eat from the tree of life, live forever in a sinful condition. In the beginning... God drove mankind out of the garden because they sinned and they were sinful. And now He calls men back into the kingdom. But in order to get in the kingdom, they have to go through the cross and through the grave and the resurrection. Look at verse 8. All at once, they looked around. Matthew 17 says they, when they saw the cloud and they heard the voice, they, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. And then Jesus, with their, while they're face down on the ground, Jesus comes and touches them and says, Get up. Get up. And they looked around and they saw no one but Jesus alone. Verse 8, They looked around and saw no one with them anymore. Save Jesus or accept Jesus alone. Because He's the only one that you need. The law and the prophets are part of God's Word. They're wonderful. They're precious. They're part of the inerrant, infallible canon of Scripture that we have. But they all witness of one person. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the preview is gone and the 
The only one who's left is the veiled king who is on his way to the cross. And that's the person, and that's the plan, and that's the message. Listen to the Son. Have you listened to the Son? The Son says, come to me. If you're heavy laden, if you're weary, come to me with your sin. The Son says, come to me. And I will take it on my back, and I will take it to the cross. I've already been to the cross. I accomplished everything that is necessary. If you will come to me, I will take your sin, and I will, I will nail it there. And then the old you can be buried in the ground, just like I was buried in the ground. And then you can come up a new creation in Christ Jesus. If you will listen to me, if you will hear and you will obey, if you will repent and you will believe, if you'll stop trying to go Peter's way, which is your way, which is the world's way, which is the earth's way, works and climb and whatever else that you might add to it, Jesus alone is who the Father points us to. And you listen to the Son. And God's plan is not the kingdom now because there can be no sinners in the kingdom And Jesus died for sinners. Aren't you glad He did? I am so glad He did. Don't you bow your heads. There's a confession. Part of that confession is a submission. Jesus is not just how you escape hell. He is Lord. He is Master. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. it. It will cost you who you are. And yet, following the suffering, following the difficulty, comes the glory. Heaven does await us. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're in the midst of that suffering. You're on that road. And you just need to be reminded today that the suffering will soon be over. And glory awaits Don't give up. You'll hear, well done. Good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of the Lord, the joy of the kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ. Listen to the Son and look to the Son. He alone is the name given whereby you might be saved. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for the clarity of it. Oh, Lord, we are so like Peter. I am so like Peter. Father, studying yesterday, so distracted, my heart drawn in ten different directions, burdened by the cares of this world when I am reading about Your glory being unveiled in this earth that's going to pass away. Oh, Father, we're weighed down by sins and difficulties and things that shouldn't even register on our meter. And You have just called us back to look to the Son and listen to the Son. Father, may we do that. May You use us this month as people will be available to us to witness. And may we point them to the words of the Son and the work of the Son. And we ask it all in His name. Amen.